com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, listeners, or whatever happens, whatever part of the day you may be listening to us. I know a lot of our listeners come in after the fact, so nonetheless, welcome to the show today. Um, very happy to have with me a couple of gentlemen who are very uh, informed about our topic, and certainly all of us are interested in education for surveying and certainly interested in its future because it is key to uh, success of the profession going forward. So we're going to talk today about that topic, and uh, I don't know if it's a new twist exactly because there's been some conversation about this before. I think I've even mentioned it on the radio show. But um, our underlying theme today is going to be the future of of the surveying education and perhaps how online or distance learning plays a role in that. But leading up to that, we'll talk a bit of maybe more about the, the current state of education and where that is and some of the different elements. So I have with me today Rich Benozzi. And, Rich, you've been on the show before. Yes, I so have. I, I think our listeners may recognize your name. And Rich is, is uh, currently, um, I guess you're you're not teaching today, obviously. <laughs> no, but, no, I'm uh, not. But, uh, but, but you just started a, a new gig not too long ago. And that, so I'll let you talk correct. about it with folks, and, and Ray is, is up in, in Maine, so we're going to have some conversation about the, the profession. So maybe, Rich, just to, re- to remind everybody about what you're doing, who you are, you can do a little, a little, I can't even talk, do a little introduction, and then we'll let Ray do the same thing. Okay. Uh, Rich Benozzi, I am an assistant professor in the Civil Engineering Department at the Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston. And I teach uh, surveying and surveying-related courses in that program. Uh, and we're in the process of developing, actually, a surveying minor so that our uh, graduates with civil engineering degrees will be able to uh, have uh, the education requirements met for licensure, at least in Massachusetts, as, um, uh, for licensure as a land surveyor as well. Great. And by the way, Rich has been very involved for a long time in our student competition. So maybe you t- maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that and what's hap- what's coming up for for the next year. Well, we're in the process of uh, defining the competition for the fall or for the next spring. It's going to be out in uh, Las Vegas in f- the end of February, and there's information on the NSPS website about the date. But this year, it's going to be a head-to-head competition rather than the uh, uh, traditional paper and presentation and project that we've done the last few years. We're switching it up a bit. And that that head-to-head kind of goes back to early days, I think. I seem to recall we we did exercises at least during the conferences. I don't know if that was was the full extent of it back then, but it was something similar to this, I think. Yes, I I think it's like a pendulum. It it swings back and forth, and like everything else, people like to mix it up. So we've done the one style for a few years. You know, we even did a um, quiz bowl one year. So we mix it up so that the students uh, uh, get uh, different opportunities uh, during their education. Yeah, that's always a good thing to do. Okay, Ray, tell uh, tell our audience about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm Ray Henson. Professor at the University of Maine in surveying engineering technology. I'm also the program coordinator. We offer a Bachelor of Science in surveying engineering technology, and we offer a professional science master's uh, that um, 
also in surveying, and we've had bachelor degrees at the University of Maine, I believe, since 1979. Yeah, I obviously know a lot of the folks you've been working up with, working with there for for a long time, and so uh, yeah, I know you got a good group group of folks up there. Today, we want to talk about surveying in general and the future of surveying and education for surveying and. I don't know how recently you guys have gone to the website, our website, or even the Be a Surveyor website, um, to to look at the number of opportunities that are out there across the country for surveying education, whether it be at the two-year level or the four-year level. Um, that's a good thing. Uh, I, I see some difficulties with keeping the programs going there, so partially because. We have so many, maybe, because that way not any school may uh, may have as many students as it should have or, or would like to have. And and I think that kind of leads us to part of what our topic is going to be about today. But, Rich, maybe you could lead off a little bit and, and give us some information about the state of education in general. Well, I, I think it's kind of a, it's, it's a classic good news, bad news situation. Um, I think on the good news side um, is the fact that the – the national, the profession nationally, has come to the realization that a bachelor's degree in surveying um, should be the minimum educational requirement for licensure, and that was you know the the board actually voted to make that the policy of NSPS back in 2014, uh, and that's the good news. The, the bad news, of course, is that so many of our our programs across the country are small and arguably under-enrolled, if you were to ask uh, college administrators, um, based on the, the, uh, the faculty um, needed to teach in programs and the infrastructure costs for the equipment, um, we, we always are struggling with that, and I think uh, that's really the, the substance of, of this conversation today is some of the things that we're doing to, uh, to address that under-enrollment uh, problem. Yeah, I think that's true, and and I know that there's differing opinions about the whole ABET role, and a number of our schools, of course, I'm sure all of our listeners already know that NSPS is the entity responsible for providing the the program evaluators for all surveying programs in the country through ABET, Um, and and that within itself can be a challenge sometimes, having uh, enough people who have gone through the process to become a, a program evaluator. Um, but in looking across the, the spectrum, if we look at all the numbers of schools we see on the website and know that are out there, it's a relatively small number that have reached ABET accreditation. I think our numbers currently are somewhere around 30, maybe a little bit under that, whether it's a two-year or four-year school. So we continue to have conversations about the, the accreditation process and whether it is properly designed to represent the things we need in programs to t- turn server, good surveyors out from our programs, or is it more uh, focused on infrastructure in terms of meeting criteria for infrastructure uh, and maybe less on what some people think are the most important things. So I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on that, from both of you, actually. 
Ray, you, you, uh, your, your program is accredited by ABET, and you've been through that. Maybe you want, might want to take the, the first shot at this. Yeah, sure, Rich. Thanks. Well, well you know, ABET's interesting in the accreditation of surveying, and number one, there's, you know, it's a lot less programs to accredit than you would in civil or mechanical or something such as that. The the ABET accreditation process is very rigid. Uh, currently, there's three categories that... Uh, uh, surveying can fit under engineering accreditation, engineering technology accreditation, and, and science accreditation. Um, uh, there, there's small differences, but I never thought the differences were, were too major, right? And I think uh, all are very, very rigid and very, very useful. Uh, it does not mean in my mind, and this is Ray espousing, not general population, that you can have a great program and not be a better accredited, right? Um, you know, there's there's no reason that that it can't be, but a bet I think does validate your process. What's interesting, a bet has really moved more towards making sure that your goals are being satisfied instead of really sharply defining these are the things you exactly got to be doing, they've really morphed, and this is not just surveying, this is across uh, everything, that you define your goals and prove to us that your goals are being satisfied, which which is, I think, very, very nice, right? That, that lets you uh, say we feel that our industrial advisory committee wants us to pursue this, we pursue it, and we prove that we've accomplished those goals, and it satisfies the general population. And I don't know, Rich, you may want to chime in on that. I have another question, but go ahead if you'd like. Well, the, the thing with ABET is it's a lot of times the decision about whether a program gets accredited or not is, is made um, by the institution. Um, and and those and so sometimes even if uh, we 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 as a profession found the process um, onerous or or even if a school were to to find that they did not you know believe that accreditation was something that they wanted to do based on the the size of their program or or what they were doing a lot of schools um, you know won't offer uh, a program unless it has some sort of an accreditation so. You know, it's, accreditation gets really, really complex. But I think what what we find is as our programs mature, and certainly, you know, as they move toward being baccalaureate programs, I think we're going to find ourselves dealing more and more with programs that will need to be accredited, if not, if not because the program or the industrial advisory committee at the school wants it, but because the institutions are gonna uh, gonna want it, so I think we're we're kind of stuck with it um, long term. I mean, I'm not sure we can change uh, change that process. And ABET is the one we, to, we use. Someone mentioned to me, and, and we're about a minute and a half from break, so we'll follow up on this when we come back. Uh, if you don't finish, but someone mentioned to me early. Uh, actually, I think it was just last last week when I was traveling. Uh, the concept of 
other education accreditation options. And I think the context of the comment was, um, or, or maybe the question being it raised was, are surveying programs or would surveying programs be as well served in some other type of accreditation or some other entity accreditation than ABET? And I don't have a clue what that answer might be, or I really don't even know enough about what these other people are doing that provide accreditations to know if what's available through them would even actually apply to surveying education. So, and, and I don't know how much you guys know about that either. It just came up actually in a meeting I was in in Baton Rouge last week. Somebody asked me about that, and, and I didn't know the answer, and I still don't know the answer. i got to do some research on it, but... Um, if there's, if you guys know anything about those different options for accreditation, maybe we can chat about that a little bit when we come back, because I'm sure there are people in the audience who are as confused as I am. So when we go to break, we're going to do that here in three seconds. So let's do that, and we'll come back shortly. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for QuickStakes today. Coming soon, only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. The Insurance Deal. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. As we were leaving the last break, I brought up this idea that had been posed to me about other accreditation options, and I'd asked a question just in general about what that means exactly, because obviously I know that there are different ways to get things accredited, but I'm not well-informed about other than others that, that relate to surveying. And so, Richard, during the break, you had made a comment about that, so maybe you could just follow up with that. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there are lots of different agencies that, that sell accreditation, but I, I think that we're, since we are the uh, re, the organization, NSPS is, that works with ABET, and ABET has traditionally been the accreditation even, you know, across all its um, committees for surveying. I, I, nothing's jumping out in, in my radar screen that there's another organization that would be more appropriate. And, you know, I think all, we should really focus on, uh, keeping the quality of the ABET accreditation for surveying as as um, as good as we can, getting evaluators, and we probably shouldn't take our eye off that ball and and um, 
and and be moving in another direction. You know, with limited time and resources and and people, uh, I think we you know ABET accreditation is very meaningful, um, and I think you know making keeping it meaningful is is a is effort better spent. Yeah. Let me just jump in. I'm sorry, Kurt. Uh, uh, there there are more university type accreditations and the University of Maine of course is part of a New England one because <laughs> where we're located and, and so every year we have to kind of slide most of our ABET uh, accreditation uh, PDF files over into the regional accreditation things. Um, they do make us do a little more evaluating on a updating things on certain uh, internet-based files on a on a at least an annual fashion but but to me that is more of a university type accreditation and not a program accreditation not a programmatic one yeah yeah correct and I think, correct and I want to like I said I don't want to belabor this point we got a lot of other things to talk about but I think part of where this came from from the person who was talking to me was what appears to be a pending dilemma, if not an already dilemma, uh, in terms of our being able to generate the PhDs we need moving forward to keep the programs maintained and accredited. Um, and, and again, I, maybe you both have opinions about that, I don't know, but I think I, that's what I gauged from the comment was that was part of the concern was, you know, is, is the requirement, or even if there is a requirement, related to PhDs being in the program, whether that's a school requirement or an accreditation requirement or whatever it is, is that going to cause us a problem moving forward because at least it appears as though we're not turning out a lot of PhDs in country. And, and I can jump in on that. Again, since ABET is goal-oriented, Kurt, if you define your in our program, our, our goal is a minimum of a master's degree and licensure. And so we, we do not enforce a Ph.D. rule for faculty, and therefore ABET would look at our goals and they'd say, oh, your goals are being satisfied. So, so that the Ph.D. issue is an issue, don't get me wrong, but it's not an issue as far as accreditation is concerned. So it really goes back to the school itself, I guess. Exactly. If if you're okay. in an institution, right? If you're in an institution that requires all faculty to have a doctorate, um, then those places may have issues. But there are lots of of schools um, that have um, you know ABET accredited surveying programs that are not uh, you know are, that can have people set those goals as master's degrees and have them on the faculty. Right. Well, that, that actually kind of leads us into the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, and that's how or if this plays into the whole model law conversation um, and how, how that plays out within this whole realm we're talking about. And, and of course, the model law gets to the licensing side uh, and what each state requires for licensure. So I, I don't know, Rich, maybe you could pick up on that a little bit. Well, just very quickly, I mean, um, the model law, um, you know, is advisory. It's 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 what the licensing side uh, thinks would be 
good requirements for a state to to implement as far as statutes, and they're really consistent with the NSPS policy. I mean, NCEES, who's the the organization that develops this model law, um, you know, they they've come to the same realization that we as a profession have is that uh, the technology and the and the body of knowledge that one needs to have to have a viable surveying career, um, you know, for the next generation, uh, really requires, you know, to get that body of knowledge requires a four-year um, uh, pre-service um, education or, or, you know, pre-licensure education. So the model law and NSPS are really in lockstep on that. Yeah, I think that's true, and and uh, when you look at um, the laws, of course, across the country, they vary dramatically, um, and it, it's really hard to keep up, honestly, in terms of what requirements are, because oftentimes when we try to, we've tried for a really long time to get a good grasp on, without having to read every state licensing law to get through our sources, what all the requirements are in the states, and and we'll hear from someone, well, my state has a four-year degree requirement. Well, then I go read their law, and, you know, five other options at the bottom, that isn't going to be the case. <laughs> so it, that the whole trend, I guess, in, in the licensing and how the different states look at the the education route, the old school apprenticeship route, the, what those trends are, will be part of this equation, I think, as we move forward and get further into this conversation we're going to have uh, going through the show about that what, what our delivery uh, options coming forward. So I don't know if either one of you have comments about the educational requirements in the states, or, or, or I don't know if you find them confusing, but but I do sometimes. I, I think you're completely right. They're 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 very very different across the entire country, and it's not even uh, regional. I mean, each you know in each region you can find. States that require a bachelor's degree in surveying for licensure, and others that still maintain an experience-only uh, pathway to licensure, and those states can be right next to each other. Um, so there's almost no rhyme or reason to it. Um, it, it just it more has to do with I think uh, state uh, state uh, legislative processes and 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 how different states. Uh, some states are comfortable changing their statutes uh, regularly, and other states uh, never want to touch a statute. Some states haven't touched their licensing statutes in 50 years. Yeah, sometimes you hear people say they're afraid to try to touch the statute because they may end up with a result they don't want. That's correct, and that's why some states' philosophies are are that they they don't touch the licensing statute at all and try to work within a, in the regulations, where other states are very comfortable going to their legislature and, tre- and tweaking their their uh, their state statutes. It's it's, yeah. it's too inconsistent I, to even try to think of if there's a pattern in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and and more and more you see uh, differing thoughts on that and differing differing uh, opinions of what a board might do. And then, of course, with all these challenges that are out there now that we're seeing, that so far, in my estimation, have not affected. The, the, what we call the professions, the, the technical professions that we're in, uh, but where state legislatures are looking at, do we really need to license all these things? And then when they start talking about it, everybody's law comes up, 
whether it's right. surveying or whether it's um, nail polish. Um, so I, I think that contributes to the conversation and maybe to the confusion and and sometimes hysteria that we hear about you know where are licensing laws going or, and how are we going to deal with them and how are we going to deal with education and we, you know there's probably well, no like, school out there that's totally comfortable. Right, I think this kind of even gets back to that, and I and I think we could sum this up and move on to, to talking about um, some of the neat things that that are happening in education. But the reason that NSPS set that national policy that the goal be a bachelor's degree in surveying. It didn't mandate it. It didn't set a timetable. The idea was is that every single state is on a different trajectory, whether that trajectory is in my lifetime or, or my grandchildren's lifetime, um, that ultimately we would want to see that. Some states are strengthening their associate's degree programs. Some of them are adding bachelor's degrees. But because the state licensing laws are so varied, there's no ability for us to really set a hard agenda like, you know, our goal is to make this happen in these states in these years, um, but basically to provide support to every state that wants to move its agenda forward. Because I think everyone has realized that more formal education is required to practice and and protect the health, safety, and welfare of the public. And, and if I could jump in to add, I'm sorry, Kurt, let me just jump in for a sec. Uh, if we back up just a little bit and look at where the fundamental survey exam is today, so preceding licensure, and if we really think of our topic for today, that exam, whether good, bad, or indifferent, is now in a place where passing it without a fairly significant education component is almost impossible. And that's just fact, right? That, you know, and that's not to say a, a very smart person could not pass that exam right now without education. Now, that's possible, but they're, they're doing some pretty fancy self-education without classroom stuff is what they're doing it's it's you know so if we get back to the education piece of it i I just have trouble believing that for the general population that exam is 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 passable without a fairly significant education component well actually that's that's a really good way to finish up this segment because it leads us into what we want to focus on in our next two segments and that is for lack of a better term, something I'll call delivery method or delivery methods. Um, and h- how will all the things we've talked about play into the particular method we want to talk about today in terms of those differences in what the state laws say and different criteria to be met, and will that impact this? what we're, what we're going to be talking about, basically, and I'll, I'll give the give the cat away here on the we're going to be talking about online or distance learning and so all of the things that we've just talked about it will have some impact on how we make that how we make that happen um and i for one think it's a great idea so let's go to break and come back and pick up on talking about that particular topic and maybe begin it by thinking about how these things affect it so we'll be right back 
intentionally or unintentionally, your recent comments were a perfect segue for where we're going next. So <laughs> you already had that planned out. I had to get us off the impossible problem, right? So. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, I think... I mean, I think that the. I mean, I almost think that if you if you set the the fundamentals as that if you have a degree program and you make it so that all the things that are you know that that, that almost becomes I want to say the final exam, but certainly the the if everybody coming out of your program you you know you have a high percentage of them are are passing the fundamentals then then we're you certainly can build a an abet accreditation case around that you provide what the states need and i think you're going to produce licensees that's going to be make nces happy yeah i i think you're right about that too and 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 your your focus on the I'm going to be talking when David comes back, I'm sure. But anyway, the, the focus... Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number. 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for Quickstakes today. Coming soon only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com The Insurance Deal you're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're going to follow up now on our conversation where we've led up to with the things we've been talking about so far. And, and where we left off was an educational system that prepares people to get to the the first step, the fundamentals exam, which, as Rich pointed out, um, a great goal for any school would be that their students all are able to pass that fundamentals exam when they're getting out of school and start their path then on on the, the real-world applications in their internship, whatever that 
time frame may be. And I've not reviewed all the state licensing boards uh, enough to know how widely that spreads, but I think for the most part that time between fundamentals, if you come in at, at quote, minimum fundamentals and get to the licensure exam, it's usually about four years or something like that, and and I'm sure that varies in some cases depending on a number of factors. But that leads us to, okay, what's our delivery method going to be now? We, we, we sort of know where we want to go, and we know we have a system now that we're a little uncertain about from the perspective of recruitment, from the perspective of enough educators, from the perspective of how it fits into the university's overall concept of education. So um, there's been a lot of talk lately about the, where we're headed with this, but one of the people who are talking a lot about it and doing some work is, are you guys up at UMaine, Ray. So maybe you can start by talking to us a little bit about this whole concept of what I call uh, brick and mortar versus online. Thanks, Kurt. Now, I'm going to make you uh, go back to it, Kurt. So go back to your trip to, to Orono in, in, I think, the 90s. You can give it. And uh, even though it wasn't for online, you were exposed to uh, online at the time. And tell me what you what you saw. Yeah, it was pretty amazing, actually. I, I came up there. I, we were doing something. I don't remember what the, what the activity was exactly, but um, I think we were honoring somebody. Fritz. Fritz. Yeah. That's right, Fritz Peterson. That's exactly what it was. And so we came up to the school, and we were looking around the school. And, of course, I've known Knut Hermanson a really, really long time. Neither one of us probably wouldn't admit how long we've known each other. Um, and we've traveled around the country a bit, and I always enjoyed the things that he was doing. And so when I got up there, I was watching some things that he was working on. And lo and behold, he's got this television set, like a lab almost, where he goes in and, and is teaching people... Uh, far away from him uh, what, what surveying is about. And, and at the time, that was a very novel concept. And, and I can't tell you how that evolved or how we got to where we are now, but that was kind of my first exposure, other than, as I told you guys on the phone, the whole idea of me taking ICS courses back when, <laughs> between high school and college when I was working uh, for the DOT. Uh, that was distance learning in a different way, but this whole idea of, of you know, all direct interaction with students um, and, and the kind of things that he was doing was intriguing to me. So so that was sort of my first uh, foray into this concept. Yeah, and I just kind of wanted to point that one out, that, that Canood being Canood, who just about everyone listening to this show would know who he is, right, uh, uh, he's kind of the, what would you call him, the Daniel Boone, the Davy Crockett of... Uh, testing technology and things like that, right? So so Knud was way ahead of his time, and I think the general technology, population, hardware, software, whatever you want to call it at the time, just wasn't ready, right? We just weren't ready for a move to online education at that time, and Knud would be the first one to... Uh, to verify that, right? So, so flash forward to today, uh, so much. Essentially, the way we use a phone, the the way we communicate, it it just has morphed us into an an online evolution. And what we've seen, at least at the University of Maine, and especially in our survey program, has been 
the ability to merge both technologies, have live but also have capture of the lecture so it's replayable uh, on questions and answers, be able to capture that and be able to stick it on the Internet where people can, can get at it to be able to replay lectures multiple times for when someone was in the live portion and they needed a little uh, snooze because they didn't have time to go to Tim Hortons and get really strong coffee, right? So so, so we've experienced a major transition in, in the last few years where essentially even our brick-and-mortar classes are half online if you would want to say right that there there's a mix of the two technologies and i see the evolution as there's traditional brick or mortar where once you leave the lecture that's it except for going for help right that it, it's gone and you're you know if you snoozed you lose right to capture of those classes and a lot of the online classes today are being done that way that you still come at some time in the afternoon and the class is live if you happen to have an emergency the class is still captured so you can replay it at a later time and then the full online today would be where the lectures are mp4 files they're put on a website, and you play it at any time you want. You play it, replay it a hundred times if you want, and you've got internet capabilities of questions and answers back to the um, um, instructor. And in fact, the way we've been doing it, you have a lot of interaction between the students. Just it's more in a digital environment instead of eyeball to eyeball, which, uh, you know, and I'm not knocking the eyeball to eyeball. The after hours uh, times together are a great learning thing, but there's going to be times when that can't be accomplished. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you a question about that on the interaction part of it. Um, if, if there's a, any, and maybe you already answered this, is there any demonstrative difference between effectiveness of those who aren't out doing something else when the show's live or the program's live, and then they come back and, and pick it up and kind of listen to it on their own. But I, obviously if they're not there when the class is going on, they're not being able to be interactive at that moment. But then at, near the end of what you were saying, you said something about them interacting through uh, our whole social media network now. So I, I was just curious about that, if you noticed any differences. I, I think it takes a little time to get going, Kurt, you know, uh, that's just obvious, right? But but one of our newer IAC members, who's actually in a very high position nationally, right? He he had all sorts of concerns, you know, and he he brought up how the after hours communication was as important as the during class stuff, and I I showed him where you know guys have interacted that are. 1,500 miles away once they got used to it, and they're, they're you know, sure, it's maybe not as fun in a, a, a local, it's not in a local pub anymore or something, but it's 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 still the same kind of communication. It's just that uh, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, a more, uh, what would you say, modern way of doing it, which is we're kind of at that point in society already. Right. And, and are there right. similarities on... I'm sorry, go ahead, Rich. 
say one of the things that I think the technology allows us to do is before you would have a single class, and in that single class, you might do three or four different things. You might go over problems, you might talk about procedures, and you might actually lecture and, you know, really present knowledge. And I think the technology lets us parse those things out, and where delivery is strictly, you know, presenting, say, terminology or, or, or procedures for doing a problem, we can do that as effectively with um, other types of presentations, you know, that is video capture or, or whatever, and then we can take those in-class times and use them for more interaction, and now with the new technologies for interaction, we can even move the interaction into an online environment, and and slowly we've we've been able to evolve and still get the same results, I think, um, you know, as far as learning outcomes, just using a different environment. And, and um, it takes just as much teaching and just as much studenting to make it happen. We're just doing it in a different environment. I think that's maybe where, you know, Knut saw it going in the 90s, and now we actually have the tools to do that really effectively, right? That's, yeah, I, 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 I think that's true. Yeah, I agree 100% that the tools just weren't there. If we look at where computerization, how how long did it take to load a, uh, uh, an aerial photo on your on your PC at the time, right? So we right. just we just weren't at the right speed and storage mechanisms and stuff at that time, and and now I sincerely believe we are. What it does open up right now, I have 25 graduate students who wouldn't be graduate students if it wasn't for online education. They could exactly. not come to Orono because every one of them's working, right? Are they taking longer to get their degrees? Probably, but that's smart, right? That's You're better off to take your time and not push yourself too hard if you're working 50, 60 hours a week, if you got a family to go home to. And now we think about at the undergrad level, how many people do we know that are working full-time for a surveyor, and if they're in a state with a four-year degree requirement, they're not, you know, I'll use Maine as an example. They're in southern Maine, and they're uh, two and a half hours away from Orono. They have no choice for education at this level except for online options. Yeah, my, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this to you guys before, my son teaches a STEM class in high school, and, and he just did a graduate uh, degree online. And... Um, you know, it takes a lot of effort and takes a lot of dedication and those kind of things. But like you said, it is possible. And believe it or not, we're a minute away from our last break before we come back to the last segment. We still have a lot to talk about. But maybe when we do come back, we can talk about maybe you, you had mentioned, Ray, when we were talking earlier, some other options. And I'm no, I was aware of some of those, the Great Basin in Florida and Idaho State you mentioned in particular. And I'm sure there may be others out there. Uh, so I'm curious. I don't know enough about their programs to know if their concepts are similar or their delivery methods are similar or if there's variations uh, among the different ones. So we might want to talk about that a little bit. And then kind of closing out, we'll talk about, well, how do you make this work? I mean, 
you know, you've got tuition issues, you've got all kinds of things going on when uh, people are coming from a lot of different places to engage in something like this. So I guess we get more down to the nuts and bolts of not the program itself in terms of the educational side, but there's always the business side. How do you make the, how do you make the business side work? So uh, let's go to that last break and we'll come back. And uh... Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back with our last segment today with Ray Hintz. And, oh, God, I can't hardly talk. Rich Benozzi, sorry about that. Got a frog in my throat there for a second, um, and we're talking about now online education and delivery methods, and 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 as Rich mentioned in the break, um, the outcomes. You know, how do you make the outcomes um, all work out? So I had asked a question, Ray. If you, I know we're aware of other programs out there that are already doing or beginning to do some of the same things. I don't know enough about them to know if what they're doing fits into this whole, uh, whole strategy that you were talking about or not, or if they're doing it in a different way. Yeah, so I'm just going to give three examples, basically, Kurt. And this isn't supposed to be inclusive, it's just three examples, because we're, you know, you can only do so much in an hour, right? right. So, uh, um, several years ago, the University of Florida actually added faculty at, I guess you could call it, regional sites. So not all of, of the, faculty that's involved in getting a surveying degree at University of Florida are located in Gainesville anymore. Um, one, for instance, located in in the, uh, the heartbed of uh, strawberry picking country in, in Plant City, right? So there's one located in southeast Florida. Now, they're still teaching, right? They're, they're, they're publish and perish, you know, get, get tenure faculty, right? So, so they have to have the uh, 
live connections, right? Because, you you know, there could be a professor teaching from Plant City, and the majority of his students are sitting in a room in, in Gainesville watching that watching him teach live right so so it is interesting how they've added faculty at regional sites to enhance the uh, educational experience um a few months ago i was out in idaho not a little state right long you know long distance uh program in pocatello and one fella at the meeting just recently got his degree and now, he might have really been in Pocatello once or twice in his life, but he, he got his degree without ever setting foot in a classroom in Pocatello. So he, he, he did it totally remote, um, uh, mostly through uh, a distance technology center a little outside of Boise, right? So that shows you another example. And probably the one that's been at it the longest and and pumping out some some good product is is Great Basin in Utah, um, and I've got some numbers from Brian. Nevada. We don't want to make a Nevada. Oh, Nevada! Hey, wow! Boy, did I make a big mistake there? <laughs> Back up, Ray. So sorry about that. That would cost us a war, right? So, oh well, I'm I'm a long ways from there, so maybe I get a get a, a, a flag waving there. So, and and thanks to Brian Calkins, I got some numbers. He's the the lead there, and 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 just to show, he's really from Vermont, right? So you know, and, <laughs> so well, what was interesting about what Brian had to say that program was actually deactivated in the spring of 14, and the argument was low enrollment. Right? Um, they had 14 or 17 people that were in the program at the time, and what's beautiful about it, 16 of them have graduated. Right? So Brian really had Byron had to really put down a, a tremendous effort to get the program go, going now. Uh, just to show you what's going on there, the recent uh, five-year totals, like in 13, five graduated, 14, five graduated, 15, eight, four, and four. But his estimate right now is somewhere between 80 to 100 people in the program. And 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 I can see it because when, when we look at like a, a higher-level undergrad course, which would be his, like his geodesy and GPS surveying class, in the last four years, there were seven, zero, because of the deactivation, eight and two in that class. So you can see of the 80 and 100, 80 to 100 that he, he gives me for a number, most of those are very, very recent. So that shows you the movement towards uh, an online degree is 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 happening, right? And, and, and Great Basin and... In the great state of Nevada is 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 a, a classic example of that. So, how does what those guys are doing uh, compare or contrast with what your proposal is? That man. Well, I I think what we're seeing in in two levels is 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 initially that program was designed to satisfy that state's educational needs and quickly they saw that there was room to expand beyond that and you know in a weird way it's a a pretty good little secret right I I think what we need and and whether it happens at the University of Maine or happens at another place or happens in multiple places we need a few 
outstanding, and I don't know what that number is, online programs. So is it a national uh, uh, supported online program? Is it uh, regional programs, which we really are because um, through the New England agreement, we're the only program in New England, so everyone from New England comes to Maine or now would be regionally linked to Maine, but I think one of the big things that has to happen is some form of e-tuition, which would be online tuition. So instead, if a person from out of state, say New York, wants to be online at the University of Maine, if he enrolls in the surveying uh, in the surveying program, he's paying in-state times 1.25 which is a humongous, humongous saving over out-of-state tuition. So there has to be a tuition break of some sort. And obviously, you can't pay in-state because that would really tick off people that are paying state uh, taxes in that state, right? So there has to be some bump, and I I think a 1.25 is a reasonable bump. Now, the University of Maine, they only offer that if you are a degree-seeking student. So you wouldn't get that bump if you're just taking a class. I see. Yeah. Okay. So, so what? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Kurt. I was I was just going to ask um, one of the other things we chatted about. Maybe I'm premature in this, but when you were talking about the curricula and and these opportunities for for tuition and those kind of things, early in the conversation we were talking about um, the number of available professors, the number of instructors. And, and when we had our preliminary com- conversation, we talked a, a little bit about this idea of program sharing curriculum and, and maybe even professors. And that seems to me like it might be a necessary element to all this, ultimately, given all the, the issues that are going on. And this only... I- it, I've already done this by accident. Um, the, the fellow that started most of the online surveying education in Oklahoma State is Danny Swain, good friend of mine. He hit one subject, and he knew he couldn't do it, right? So they always wondered. They'd always ask him when he was still there. He's no longer there. Why does your voice sound so strange when you're teaching this one class? Well, it was my voice, right? So. <laughs> So we are, we already had program sharing, right? So so I, I always use it. Uh, does there need to be fifty adjustment computations classes in the United States? I think there has to be just a few good ones, right? And and maybe a national online is just too unitary, but but I think a, a, a few good ones is a more reasonable way to do it, and, and I, I don't mind sharing with people, and I'm sure people don't mind sharing, right? It's it's uh, it's always back to resources. Ray, yeah. do you, would, and I to jump in on that, so with an online program, you know, there's nothing sacred about the instructor being like in a bricks and mortar, you know, sitting in a classroom in in Orono, if you had a class that needed to be taught, couldn't the university hire someone from, you know, somewhere else, literally as an adjunct, to teach a particular class? And, and, you know, if you had, say, a few of these regional programs, and and one in Florida or Idaho or or whatever, if they had a, you know, if they had a, a, a gap in their faculty in a particular 
um, area, couldn't another faculty member at another school teach there as an adjunct? I don't see any reason why they couldn't, Rich. Right. And they're they're just merging into the class that already exists at their home university. Right, and or or if you had someone, if, if you know, if you had someone, you know, that was, you know, I mean, I, you know, I always consider, you know, photogrammetry being my sort of weakest teaching spot. If I were to have a program in some university and I needed a and I needed a photogrammetry professor, if there was someone who, you know, wanted to cover that that course, you know, every other year if it was only offered or whatever, and they taught online from, you know, Wichita, Kansas, um, you know, if it puts a quality product in the in the learning goals and objective of of the home institute are met, um, I think we, we have a we have a solution. And I think we should always realize, as far as the lecture material goes, there's nothing magical about the Internet. These, they're MP4 files, right? They, they go on a memory stick as easy as they go on the Internet, right? So, right, so they may so not be lecturing, but when it comes to helping students with problems and correcting homeworks and, and you know, maybe working on a class project or a lab, you know, it, it's, it may be something that you know you could get someone you know gee I don't have to do the do the lectures because we're just going to take you know you know Ray's lectures on photogrammetry when he didn't have gray hair and we're going to run those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a joke that and I think it was actually true, and I won't even mention the department. There was one online course from many years ago that that was offered with someone lectures after that person was no longer on this earth so that's kind of morbid but uh <laughs> so they finally have updated that we're about a minute as long as the estate gets a from, check right <laughs> yeah we're about a minute and 20 seconds out from being done from today but i think we've whetted the appetite for our audience to think about this and the concept of the fact that this can really work so the next step we take i think is Maybe through NSPS, Rich, we try to come up with a national perspective on this as um, looking forward as a way to, for lack of a better term, solve our issues regarding having enough uh, education opportunities but also making them available to as many people as possible. Exactly. I think what I want to do is take, take this as and continue to keep my keep our fingers on the pulse of this so that we can keep it and push it out to the mem- to to the member states so that when their members want to get the education we have places to send them yeah well thank you both for being with me today it's been a great show and um, we'll have to continue this conversation as we go further i'd love to have you back I really appreciate all your help on sports thanks is your answer to staking lightweight easy to ride on easy to use easy to find and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes have you tried a sample if not get a pen and paper and write down this number 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e dot com and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quick stakes today with all the back and forth in today's politics 
It seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The best in chat radio designed just for you. About the mind, the brain, 